0: We are three, we're in week three of steeping in the Holy Spirit. We have looked at who the third person of the Trinity is. We've looked at his attributes last week. And we began looking at his ministry. And if you are here today, you are here because God called you here. You have an appointment with him this morning. He has invited you to be here because he has something to say to you. He has something that he wants you to know. And first it's that you're loved. So incredibly loved. And he wants to transform you. He wants to make you the son and daughter he created you to be. And that's why we're steeping like a good cup of tea in the presence of the Spirit. We're digging in and going deep, making space for him to do what he would do in us as individuals, as families, and as a church family. Oswald Chambers says that the spirit is the first power we practically experience. But it's the last power we come to understand. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 says this. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of God the heart. I love this book. And I love this beautiful book because it doesn't matter how many times I've read it, I always find something brand new. And this week was no different. As I was reading through numbers, I shockingly came upon a story that I, I don't know if I've ever read before. I mean, I have, but I never noticed it before. So it's in Numbers chapter 11, and I'm going to give you some context. So God is creating a nation, and it started with a person named Abram, and he called Abram to follow him and to go into a land to leave his people and to go where God would show him. And so Abram did, and he was then changed names to Abraham, and they had Isaac, and this nation began to form And then we have Moses. And Moses becomes this Christ-like reality in the Old Testament. And so there are the people, the the people of God, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. And, And you need to read through Genesis to understand that they end up in slavery. They end up... In a course of action, as God is weaving through and refining his people, they end up in Egypt. And at first they have power and favor through a man named Joseph. But then pharaohs change, and the pharaoh for God, and, and the, the Egyptians become afraid of God's people because they're like rapidly producing. And there's a couple million of them, and they are being oppressed. And God uses... Moses and his brother Aaron, and he delivers God's people from slavery. You've heard of the plagues. That's that story. So now they're wandering in the desert. And I I took this phrase from Frank Peretti, who writes the kids' thing, Mr. Henry, and he calls the Israelites moanheads. And they are moanheads wandering in the desert. And where we find this in chapter 11 of, of numbers is the moan heads are complaining. I mean, they are whining, and every family is whining, and they are complaining, as they're wandering in the desert oh, by the way, you should know this. They're in the desert, and every day food falls from heaven. OK? Like it rains food. Every day, except on the Sabbath, manna falls from heaven. And they get to collect it, and they get to grind it up, and they get to make food. Okay? The creator of everything is raining food down to these moanheads. And they're not grateful. In fact, they're complaining about the food. And they're whining, saying, well, when we were in Egypt, we got leeks and onions and garlic. And they're complaining about everything. They want meat. And Moses gets to this point where he is just sick and tired of it. He's sick and tired of the whining because there's not a family that's not complaining. So Moses does what you and I would do, and he then goes complaining to God. So in Numbers 11, 11 to 15, it says, And I asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you would put the burden of all of these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Come on, Moses has an attitude when he's talking to God here. Did I give birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to a land that you promised an oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for these people? They keep wailing to me, give me meat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. Then this is my favorite whiny part. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I found favor in your eyes, then don't let me face my own ruin. So Moses is tired of the moan heads. And now Moses has become a moan head to God. And God says, you want meat, I'll give you meat. But You're not just going to eat meat for one day or two days or four days. You're going to eat it for a whole month. And quail come in. And it rains quail. But God is also going to deal with the burden that Moses is carrying. And he tells Moses to go and collect 70 elders. And so in verse 24, we pick this up. It says, so Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said about the meat. And he brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him. Catch this. And he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him, Moses, and he put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in camp, and they were listed among the elders, but they didn't go to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses that Eldad and Medad were prophesying in the camp. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said to Moses, My Lord, stop them! But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? Catch this. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. And that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses in the desert. I don't know how many times I've read it. But this week I caught it. I got it. Moses knew something. And knew it was going to be better off. If God would just do this for everyone. So in the the Hebrew scriptures, in the Older Testament, the Holy Spirit was empowering special leaders for a particular person, purpose. So not everyone had the Spirit come upon them. God would use his Spirit to come upon special leaders. For a particular purpose. And for the most part, this was for the ministry of God's people. For the nation of Israel. So Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders, the judges, King Saul, King David, and the prophets. There's approximately about a 100 people in the Hebrew scriptures that experience the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. But Moses had said to Joshua, who's like, Moses, tell them to be quiet. Like, I'm, I'm next in line. What are they doing? Moses says, don't be jealous for my sake. That they have the spirit of God on them. Because I, I would love it if God would put a spirit on all people. Then we have the days of King Solomon. David, who was a man after God's heart. And the good news is, is David was just like us. But God had given him this vision for a temple, and it came to pass in his son's day, in King Solomon's day, and the temple was constructed, and the temple was built. And then the temple was opened. And we read about it in 2 Chronicles Because Solomon has finished the temple and he calls the whole nation to come. And he's bringing with him the gifts that his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and various articles. And he summons the elders of Israel and the heads of tribes and the leaders of ancestral families. And they were to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. And so they all assembled... And I'm going to pick this up in verse 6. It says, There before the ark, King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep and goats and cattle that no one could keep count. Then the priests carried the ark of the Lord's covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place. And they placed it beneath the wings of the cherub. And the cherubim spread their wings over the ark, forming a canopy Over the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place, which is in front of the most holy place, but not from outside. And they're still there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses placed in on Mount Sinai, where the Lord made a covenant with his people of Israel when they left Egypt, so the Ten Commandments. I want to jump down. So we have all of these people gathered, and I want you to see it in your imagination. And they are dressed in fine linens, and they're standing, and they're playing their instruments, and they're worshiping. And the trumpeters and the singers perform together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord, accompanied by the trumpets and the cymbals and other instruments, and they raise their voices They're singing hallelujah. They're singing he is good, he is faithful, his love endures forever. And at that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. Could you imagine being there that day? Where the presence of the Lord just comes in. And in this place, the Holy of Holies, people could not enter it. In fact, you probably heard this story of Zachariah at Christmas time. He was the priest going in. He had drawn a lot, and it was his time, and they tied a rope around him, because any wrong move, if you touched the ark, you would be smoked. So they didn't want dead bodies, so they, wrapped a, they tied you up so they could pull you out if necessary. This sacred place that one person once a year could go to. And then Jesus comes. And he shows himself to be the Messiah. And he is the suffering servant, not the captain or a commander of a human army. And he dies on a cross, and it makes no sense in the moment to those that are there. Because they believed him to be the son of God. They believed him to be God, and yet God died. And all seemed lost. And they took his body and they placed him in a borrowed tomb. But the very good news about God is he can't stay dead. The grave cannot hold him. And so in three days, he got up. He took off his burial clothes. He folded them neatly. Kids, take note. He did his laundry. He folded them neatly. If that wasn't important, God wouldn't have included it in the scripture. So take note. Girls. And he walked out of the grave. Scarred and marked. But alive. Our Jesus today is alive. We do not worship a grave we worship a risen king. And then he dwelled with his followers again for a period of time. Then he tells them, listen, it's better for you if I go. Because when I go to the Father, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send another one like me, an advocate, a comforter, the third member of the Trinity. And he's going to be with you forever. Forever. I want you to get this. In the depths of your soul, what we read about Solomon's temple and that moment where nobody could do anything because the spirit of the Lord came in, that happened in you. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that temple moment happened to you. And it's this incredible mystery. Because I know my heart. And like Paul, I, I can do the things I ought not to do. And I don't do the things I should do. And yet God chooses to live inside of me. At Christmas, we talk about Emmanuel, God with us. The spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the living God, the comforter, the advocate, is God with me, with me, in me, changing me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Do not realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God you do not belong to yourself. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to his praise of his glory, to those who are God's possession, owned by God. Loved ones, you have heard me many times speak about the spirit of God indwelling us, taking up residence in us. For me, this is this glorious mystery of God, and I want to encourage you this moment, in this moment, to ask the Lord to help you to understand the magnitude of that reality. See, you and I, we were nothing but filthy rags, sinners in need of saving, and the perfect holy creator, the sustainer of all life and of everything— lives in you if you've given your life to him. When you first believed in Jesus, you were marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, you became a new creation. You became spirit born. This is a dramatic transformation. And it is the initial purification that we experience by the Holy Spirit. It is rapid and it is radical. See, here's the thing: We have all been born in sin. When we are born and we leave our mother's womb, every single one of us is a sinner. Because sin entered our DNA. There is no one good enough. There is nothing that will make you worthy enough. You were cut off. We were born physically alive but spiritually dead. But that power of God that we first encountered, the Holy Spirit is the one who begins to call us to God. He begins to entice us. He begins to open our eyes. We begin to start thinking about things maybe we've never thought about. That maybe there is a God. Maybe this Jesus thing is true. And these sparks start happening inside of us and we're just feeling drawn we have questions and it's almost like you can't help yourself you want to know more you're seeking to know more that's the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus and when the day comes that you surrender that you say you know what there's something to this and I don't have all the answers but I know something's happened, and I know that there's a God, and I know that Jesus lives. And this moment where you begin to see that, wow, I'm not as good as I thought I was. In light of this God that I'm beginning to know, I'm a sinner, and I see it, and I feel it, and I know it. And that's the opportunity to confess that to Jesus and to invite him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, to step over the line. And when we do that in faith, God gives us his spirit to rejuvenate us, to renew us, to lead us in truth through the Spirit to point us to Jesus, and when we make that transition from spiritually dead to spiritually alive and the Spirit of God indwells us, transformation begins to happen in our hearts and in our minds. We begin to start thinking differently than we've ever thought before. We begin to start feeling something, kind of like you've all seen The Grinch, You know, when his heart starts growing, I don't know about you, but that's what happened to me. That is this initial purification. It is rapid and it is radical. It is transformation, spiritually dead to spiritually alive. But God doesn't end it there for us. Because, see, we're still struggling and we're still learning. And you can be a Christian for 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years if He lets you. But you won't be completely transformed. Because, see, there's this second work, and it's a lifetime of work. And it's called sanctification. It is the process. It is the process in which the Holy Spirit is rooting out our old nature and replacing it with the character and nature of Jesus. It's this continual transformation of how we think and how we feel and what we do. The work of the Holy Spirit, his ministry on earth, is always to point us to Jesus. And it's to transform us into being more like Jesus. So Paul writes in Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed their passions and their desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. So Paul is saying, so who you were, those things about you that aren't of God? The Bible calls that our flesh, our sin nature, our old self. He said those, those who belong to God, those who belong to Christ, they've taken those things and they've nailed them to the cross. They've crucified them. So, loved ones, I know... That the Holy Spirit does not just minister to us on Sundays when we gather to worship. And I am praying for you, so I know, I know that he's been speaking to you. And I know that he's been guiding you. If you're here, that's proof. I know that he's wanting to do a work in you. And I know that he is working out your salvation. And I know he wants your attention. He wants you to trust him, and he wants your heart. So let me ask you, are you willing to give it to him? Galatians 5, Paul gives us two lists. He gives us a list that describes our flesh, our sinful desires, our old nature. That is to be nailed to the cross and crucified with Jesus. And he gives us a list of attributes that display the character and nature of Jesus in us. This tangible evidence that when we display it, it is showing the world that we have more of Jesus in us and less of us. So. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You've all heard them. The nine fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Together, this fruit... Singular, not plural, fruit, as Paul describes it, is evidence of the Spirit's work in our life. Now, I need you to know that fruit is produced by a seed. You can't work to grow fruit, fruit is birthed out of a seed. So when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, when he indwells us, it's it's in that moment that seed production begins. And the evidence that the seed has fallen on good soil is that the seed begins to grow. It is a lifelong work, of submitting to the Father. It's a lifelong work of practicing dying to yourself, dying to your old nature, dying to the things that lurk around you that want you to be who you once were. See, the seed simply needs good soil. It needs nurturing. It needs water, sunlight, and time. I need you to hear me, especially if you're new or inquiring about this faith. Despite what might be displayed on television, Christianity is not a rule-based religion. It is not a rule-based religion. Christianity is a relationship with the living God. Our growth is never based on how much good we can do or how good we are. Our growth is completely dependent on how much we yield to God. Maturing in the Christian life is the result of our outpouring relationship with the lover of our soul. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence in our lives that we have a relationship with Jesus. It allows others to see the nature and character of Christ being reproduced in us. I am more convinced than ever that we think that the fruit of the Spirit is something we put on, that it's something we choose. Work's going rough. Monday's coming fast. You think, all right, I'm going to need extra grace and mercy. I'm going to work on those this week. You might last five minutes, seven if you're saintly. But as soon as a person comes around, you're in trouble. Life would be so easy if it wasn't for people, Right? Or how about you're stuck in traffic and you're commuting to Toronto, Lord help you. (laughs) Or you're in a long grocery line and you've got places to be and you left it to the last minute and you think, boy, I need to learn patience. How about none of that is how it works? The fruit... You can't do it. You can try. You'll fail. I want to ask you a question. How often do you consider the Holy Spirit's work within you with regards to producing the fruit of the Spirit? I'm not sure we think about that very often or maybe at all. We know the Holy Spirit. We know he convicts us of sin. We know he regenerates us. We know he lives in us. He matures us. He empowers us. And as he's renewing us and regenerating us, he's convicting us. He's pointing out the works of the flesh, that old nature that we're to die to. And he is compelling us to get rid of it so that he can replace it with health, where he can replace it with seed that will reproduce the character and nature of Jesus in you. This is the lifetime work of the Spirit in you. As long as your feet are planted here and you have air in your lungs, this is what the Spirit is doing. He's never done. Because we're always battling. Paul then goes ahead and he actually starts with who we really are. Sexual, sexually immoral, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy. Outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list that describes who we are without Jesus. That sin nature that we have been born with. And listen, we live in a world that says you can, you can have those. Just be better than other people about it. You know, just don't be like them. And we measure our goodness on the horizontal. But God says that's not the measuring line. It's vertical. I created you. I made a way for you to be right with me, the Lord says. So, loved ones, I need to ask you a question. Where do you see yourself in the list? Sexually immoral? Impurity? Lustful pleasures? Idolatry? Sorcery? Hostility? Quarreling? jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, or whatever the spirit is putting his finger on right now in you. What's he speaking to you about? In Psalm 139, David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Pour out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. This must be our prayer today. It must be our prayer every day, loved ones. So let's do that. We pray with me. Spirit of the living God, search us even now. We know that we are safe with you. So do your work in us this day. Please do not leave us as we are, because we long for transformation in our lives in our hearts and in our minds. So Spirit, move. Spirit, speak. Spirit, transform. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, for many of us, we have distanced ourselves from the renewing work of the Spirit we have limited or we have stopped the process somewhere along the line of allowing him to make us more like Jesus. We would sooner wear a mask than be vulnerable. We would sooner lie than have our sin exposed. The London Times once held this essay contest asking people to answer the question, What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, a great Catholic journalist and a master writer entered the contest, and here's what he wrote. What is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. This is not someone else's problem. This is your problem this is my problem. This is our problem. We would sooner wear a mask than be vulnerable. We would sooner lie than have our sin exposed. We buy this lie that God will not be faithful to transform us. We buy the lie that this one thing that it'll do in God, He can't handle it. See, the world is not moved by human sized results. The world is not moved by love and action that are human created. And the world is not moved by a church that is not spirit empowered. We know this. The statistics prove it. If we allow to have if we allow the spirit of God to have his way in us today to transform us as he wills, the world will not be able to ignore the people of God because we will be different. Because the character and nature of God will be overwhelming in us. We will love not with human ability, but with God ability. We will be patient not with human ability, but with God ability. We will have self-control and goodness and kindness and faithfulness. Not according to our own nature, but according to the nature of Jesus. The world will take notice of that. The world will want that. The world needs that. As wonderful as this all sounds, it requires something from you. Paul says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed their passions and desires of their sinful nature To his cross and crucified them there. So, if you are hearing this message today for the very first time, there is an invitation to be received or rejected. The choice is honestly yours. This loving God will not force himself on you, but he invites you to know him, to know his love. To know his plan for you, his plan of healing, his plan of wholeness, his plan of new birth. And you can receive it in an act of faith by acknowledging today that you believe that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is alive, that you're being prompted by the Spirit into relationship with him. It's about a conversation that really is simple. And I'm going to invite you, if you are feeling that prompting, to pray this prayer with me today. Father God, something's happening and I can see you and I can feel you and I am longing to know you. I know that I'm a sinner. So, Jesus, I invite you to forgive me, to heal me, and to make me whole. Holy Spirit, take up residence in me today. Make me a new creation for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, Welcome to the family. There's a party in heaven. Angels are rejoicing because of you. If you've prayed that prayer today, I want to encourage you to connect with the believer. You are welcome to connect with me personally or one of our other pastors. You are welcome to connect to the church. And we will be sure to reach back because this is an exciting, beautiful journey. Now, friends, for those of you who are on live stream, I want to thank you for joining us today. We love you and we bless your week, but we're going to get some time alone with the Spirit now. So we are going to bid you farewell and cut our live stream.